From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dennis Kim. It's been a little while since we last had rounds. I was up in Canada for the last month visiting with family and also had the opportunity to do a critical care locum in Victoria, which is located on Vancouver Island, where I also had the opportunity to both meet and actually work alongside one of my favorite podcasters, A1 Dr. Adam Thomas from the Internet Book of Critical Care. On that note, I wanted to send a huge shout out to all the fantastic and talented healthcare professionals at the Royal Jubilee and Victoria General Hospitals. Thank you so much for your service. Now, today on Rounds, I wanted to discuss one of my favorite ACS or EGS topics, and that is necrotizing soft tissue infections or NSTIs. And I'd like to thank Dr. Tim Montree for suggesting this topic for the show. So we have four key objectives for today's rounds, and by the end of the podcast, you should be able to, number one, describe the classification and microbiology of NSTIs. Number two, identify the key risk factors for these infections. Three, discuss the clinical presentation and diagnostic approach to NSTIs, and to that extent, we'll briefly touch upon the Lernick score. And finally, you should be able to understand the role of surgery and newer adjuncts in the management of patients with NSTIs. So NSTIs are rare, life-threatening infections characterized by aggressive or fulminant tissue destruction, and it may come as no surprise that they're associated with significant morbidity as well as mortality, especially if there are delays in diagnosis or if attempts at initial source control are inadequate. I think that it's important to point out that this group of infections can involve any layer or layers of soft tissue, including the epidermis, dermis, subcute tissues, fascia, or muscle. And classically, NSTIs were referred to as necrotizing fasciitis. And although it may be true that given the relatively poor blood supply to the muscular fascia, that infection may spread along these planes, it's important to bear in mind that patients may have involvement of any layer. Thus, patients may have a necrotizing cellulitis or paniculitis or a necrotizing myositis and so on and so forth. When it comes to classifying NSTIs, they're typically classified on the basis of microbiology and fall under two large categories, type 1 or type 2. With that said, NSTIs may also be classified on the basis of anatomical site of infection, for example, Fournier's gangrene or perineal NSTI. Of note, the microbiology differs based on the affected site. For example, anal, genital, and abdominal infections, not surprisingly, are most often due to genital urinary or gastrointestinal infections, such that gram-negative and anaerobic species predominate, and it's not uncommon to encounter multidrug-resistant organisms, like extended-spectrum beta-lactamase-producing E. coli or Klebsiella species. So getting back to type 1 NSTIs, these are polymicrobial infections which involve both aerobic, anaerobic, as well as facultative anaerobic organisms that act synergistically. And these polymicrobial infections in general are much more common than type 2 infections which are monomicrobial. Why type 1 is poly and type 2 is mono, it seems like it should be the other way around, but this is the way it's classified. 
Now, type 1 or polymicrobial infections are usually seen in elderly patients, as well as in those with a number or underlying illnesses, things like diabetes, obesity, and predisposing factors, not surprisingly, include things like diabetic or decubitus ulcers, and as such, the extremities are the most commonly affected anatomic sites, with the lower extremities being affected preferentially to the upper extremities, followed by perineal NSTI, which may occur as a sequela of benign anal rectal pathology, or following surgery on the GI or GU tracts, as well as gynecologic or obstetrical procedures like an episiotomy. Now, necrotizing soft tissue infections or type 2 infections, these are monomicrobial infections, and group A streptococcus or gas is the organism most commonly associated with these infections, followed by Staph aureus, specifically MRSA. And unlike type 1 infections, type 2 infections may occur in any age group and in persons without any underlying illness. And in about 50% of patients or cases, there is actually no clear portal of entry that's identifiable on the history or physical exam. Side note regarding invasive group A strep. So M protein is a really important virulence protein produced by strep pyogenes, which helps it to evade phagocytosis and gain access to hosts. Necrotizing infections caused by group A strep strains with M types 1 and 3 specifically are associated with streptococcal toxic shock syndrome in about 50% of cases. Now, these group A strep strains can produce pyrogenic exotoxins, which result in production of cytokine, cytokine storm, which will ultimately contribute to the host response, resulting in shock, tissue injury, as well as remote organ failure. Now, once upon a time, there was a type 3 NSTI, and this classically referred to gas gangrene or clostridial myonecrosis with clostridium perfingens causing approximately 80% of such infections. Other pathogens included things like clostridium septicum, which may be seen in the setting of a colorectal malignancy. Two other important pathogens that you'll hear about include Eremonis hydrophilia and Vibrio vulnificus, and some experts to this day have proposed that infections with these microbes and possibly clostridial species be classified as necrotizing soft tissue infections type 3. Now, there are several well-known risk factors for these infections, and I typically like to think of these as patient-related factors, specifically comorbidities, versus breaches of skin or mucosal integrity. Regarding comorbidities, diabetes is super common, obesity, cardiovascular or peripheral vascular disease, as well as chronic alcohol abuse and immunosuppression, which includes HIV, diabetes, cirrhosis, neutropenia, in addition to DMARDs or meds. Of note, there does also seem to be an association between NSTIs and NSAID use. Now, when it comes to skin or mucosal breaches, these include things like superficial cutaneous lesions, whether they be insect bites or lacerations, or due to drug injections, surgical incisions, or following childbirth. Patients who have sustained penetrating trauma of any type, whether it's intentional or not, are obviously also at risk. Now, with all that said, it's really critical to bear in mind that this group of infections can occur in healthy patients with no past medical history or 
obvious preceding trauma or portal of entry. In fact, up to a quarter of patients with NSTIs have no obvious predisposing factors. An exemplar of this may be strep pyogenes, which may translocate from the throat, let's say following an episode of strep throat, and then that's followed by hematogenous or metastatic spread to sites distant from the head and neck, for example, in an area where there was a muscle strain or even minor blunt trauma. Now, I just mentioned that the use of NSAIDs may be associated with the development or progression specifically of streptococcal necrotizing infections, but data are conflicting. Irregardless, NSAIDs, it's argued, may mask signs and symptoms of inflammation in patients with NSTI, which could be associated with a delay in diagnosis. Now, regarding our third objective, discussing the clinical presentation and diagnostic approach to NSTIs, Perhaps the most important caveat to bear in mind when it comes to making the diagnosis is to maintain a high index of suspicion. And I know we say that a lot. For me personally, any patient presenting with a soft tissue infection manifested by swelling, erythema, and pain, especially if that pain is out of proportion to the clinical exam, together with a SERS response or evidence of systemic illness, probably warrants a surgical consultation. In terms of the clinical presentation, NSTIs usually present acutely, i.e. over the course of hours, and rarely patients may present with a more indolent or subacute presentation, and we oftentimes see this in the setting of diabetic foot infections. However, rapid progression to extensive and severe destruction can occur, leading to systemic toxicity amputation, and or death. So really recognizing the potential for a necrotizing infection is critical. When it comes to the physical exam, any patients manifesting fevers or hypothermia together with hypotension, tachycardia, tachypnea, these are all red flags for some underlying systemic process beyond just, for example, an abscess or pyoderma or cellulitis. And one thing that I would put out there is when you do go to see a patient with a potential NSTI and there is erythema, make sure that you mark out that erythema because if we start to see that progress, that always raises concerns that we need to be in the OR making the diagnosis and potentially debriding tissue rather than continued observation with antibiotics alone. Now, when it comes to physical exam findings, we sometimes talk about hard signs of NSTI, and this includes things like hemorrhagic bulli, crepitus, violaceous hue, but the issue with all these physical exam findings is that they're very rarely present in the majority of patients. In fact, only about a third upwards of maybe 50% of patients will have these hard signs of NSTIs. And as we mentioned earlier, one of the things that you definitely want to look out for is pain out of proportion to the physical exam. In the setting of NSTIs, diminished sensation to pain may also develop in the involved areas, and this is thought to be due to thrombosis of small blood vessels and potential injury to superficial nerves in the subcutaneous tissues, but it's kind of hit or miss whether or not that'll be present. Other constitutional symptoms that may be associated with NSTIs include malaise, myalgias, diarrhea, as well as anorexia. 
Now, the differential for patients presenting with severe skin soft tissue infections is broad, and you do want to differentiate these from other conditions, which may be simply treated with antibiotics and supportive care alone. And these include things like a cellulitis, pyoderma gangrenosum, pyomyositis, DVTs, particularly massive DVTs with associated phlegmasia, cerulea dolens, or albicans. And we've had several cases over the years of patients with cutaneous manifestations of calciphylaxis, which have been associated with severe infections, but not quite meeting the definition of necrotizing soft tissue infections. Following the history and physical exam, usually by this time our labs will have resulted, and there are several lab values that have been shown to be predictive for the presence of NSTIs. Uh, out of our shop many years ago, they looked at the utility of serum sodium, specifically the presence of hyponatremia and hyperlactatemia for the presence of NSTIs. And I think many of you are familiar with the laboratory risk index for necrotizing fasciitis score or the LERNIC score. And this is a scoring system to identify patients at risk for NSTIs and consists of six variables that you can get from a CBC and chem panel. And they are your white blood cell count, hemoglobin, sodium, creatinine, glucose, and CRP. I'll be honest, around here, we very rarely order a CRP, and there certainly have been recent discussions talking about the potential utility of an admission procalcitonin and then trending that procalcitonin to see if adequate source control has been obtained. Now, one thing that I would say when it comes to interpreting the results of the LERNEX score, and again, a score of six or higher, is usually very specific for the presence of an NSTI, but you do have to interpret these values uh, with caution, particularly among patients with chronic renal insufficiency or cirrhosis, where they tend to have these pre-existing metabolic abnormalities like hyponatremia and an elevated creatinine, which doesn't necessarily indicate that there's an NSTI. It's really just a reflection of the underlying comorbidities or disease process. And last year, there was a very nice systematic review and meta-analysis published in the Annals of Surgery by first author Fernando. And this looked at the diagnostic accuracy of the physical exam, imaging, as well as learning score on making the diagnosis of NSTIs. And what they found was that the learning score was highly specific but insensitive. So your patient comes in, you have a high index of suspicion, just because their learning score is low doesn't mean you should be reassured by that. When it's high, great, but low or normal doesn't really help out too much. Now, when it comes to diagnostic imaging modalities, the two most commonly researched and discussed imaging modalities are CT and MRI. And I think when it comes to the two, CT really has been shown to be the superior and more readily available diagnostic modality. 
Some people may still consider getting a plain film just to look for evidence of air in the soft tissues. And when it comes to CT scanning, a couple of different uh, imaging scores have been developed, and they pretty much look for the same thing, namely the presence or absence of fluid collections or abscesses, the absence or heterogeneous tissue enhancement, as well as inflammatory changes or edema at or below the level of the fascia. In my personal opinion, I think when it comes to certain cases, especially in patients who have had, let's say, a a BKA or AKA, and you're kind of concerned about a stump infection, the presence of an abscess, and they've got migratory cellulitis, CT may be very helpful uh, in these particular scenarios. But in general, and I think the key take-home point when it comes to diagnostics is this, surgery is the gold standard test. So. If you have a patient in whom you have a high index of suspicion for necrotizing soft tissue infection and you want to definitively make the diagnosis and hopefully maybe get a little bit of untroubled sleep, get them up to the OR, make an incision right there and then you'll know yay or nay necrotizing soft tissue infection. Now, when it comes to the management of NSTIs, the priorities here, again, should be timely diagnosis based on a high index of suspicion, early sepsis management, followed by definitive source control in the form of wide surgical debridement. Following recognition, early initiation of broad-spectrum antibiotics is critical, and ideally, this should be preceded by a septic workup, including blood cultures. Always remember to check out your local antibiogram to have a better understanding of local sensitivities. Now, in terms of the antibiotics regimen, in general, we would start with combination therapy, either with a carbapenem or piperacillin tazobactam, together with an agent effective against MRSA, typically vancomycin, as well as clindamycin. And the latter is used primarily for its antitoxin and other effects against toxin-elaborating strains of strep and staph species. For the less common organisms like Vibrio and Eremonis, combination therapy with doxycycline and ceftriaxone usually suffices. Vibrio, interestingly, has been documented in patients with cirrhosis who ingest raw oysters and may occur following minor penetrating trauma with exposure to seawater. I always remember fresh air to remind me that Eremonis infection may occur following a laceration exposed to fresh water. Now, again, antibiotic treatment should be tailored to gram stain, culture, and sensitivity results when available, but I would certainly recommend continuing with this broad-spectrum regimen until the results of those come back and patients are clinically improving. Now, one of the debates that sometimes comes up is if you have a patient who's in septic shock and they're hypotensive and super sick, is it better to resuscitate them, let's say in the emergency room or SICU, or just better to get to the OR for definitive source control? And in these cases, what we found is that it's always better to get the patient to the OR where you can perform your incision, debridement, get some sort of source control, at least temporarily, and then go to the ICU for ongoing resuscitation. So you want to treat this like a damage control surgery, similar to how you would treat any emergency general surgery or trauma case. 
In terms of the operative approach, you know, very rarely we encounter patients who have this super aggressive migratory NSTI that literally spreads in front of your eyes. And if that's involving an extremity, my practice in these rare cases is actually to make an incision or counter incision proximal to the area of obvious involvement just to make sure that we're getting ahead of the infection. But in most cases, you're going to make an incision overlying the affected area. And I think one of the key points when it comes to ruling out the presence of an NSTI is not just to stop at the level of the fat or adipose, you really need to visualize and incise the fascia and also get a good look at the muscle. And what are we looking for? Well, we always used to talk about dishwater pus. That may or may not be present, similar to many of the other hard signs. What you're looking for is pale-looking tissues, You're also looking for purulence, and if you think that there is muscle involvement, assessing the muscle for contraction as well as looking at the color of the muscle, and essentially if there is any tissue that you're concerned about, debride it. Oftentimes, if there is infection spreading along those fascial planes, what we've also found is that there's really a lack of adherence between the soft tissues and the fascia. And so you want to be super aggressive here. This is not the time to do keyhole surgery or make small incisions. You want to be really aggressive here because for many patients, this may be their one shot to get adequate initial source control and to, again, prevent some of those horrible complications like amputation as well as death. In general, I'd recommend getting intraoperative cultures as well as a gram stain. And when you do send tissue off to pathology to get a histologic analysis, sometimes that may be very revealing in terms of some of the findings of uh, thrombosed blood vessels as well as the presence of bacteria within the specimen and or the presence of myonecrosis. Once initial adequate debridement has been obtained in general, We will not place a vac at the initial operation and simply wrap these wounds in moist curlex as well as ABDs. Other authors have actually argued for just leaving the wounds exposed to air. Whichever way you go, you need to remember that these large wounds may be a source of significant insensible evaporative losses and can act as a catabolic drains. So making sure that patients are adequately resuscitative, have ongoing fluid repletion, as well as support in the form of nutrition are critical. Once patients are in the ICU, I think even before you leave the OR, you do want to have a definitive plan to have a mandatory re-exploration, usually within the first 24 hours or sooner, if patients don't seem to be responding to your initial attempts at source control and supportive therapy in the ICU. So patients who, for example, and we see this a lot with uh, bad fornease gangrene, they get to the ICU, their vasopressor support continues to increase. Oftentimes, these patients may have very difficult to examine anatomy. And so that should be the trigger to take you back to the OR or take your patient back to the OR sooner rather than later. Now, in high-volume centers like ours where we see a lot of necrotizing soft tissue infections and usually can get away with good bedside exams, we have written about and talked about not having to do mandatory re-explorations. But in general, the safest way to go is to definitely take patients back within the first 24 or 48 hours. 
Again, I can't emphasize enough the importance of getting these patients to the OR in a timely fashion. One of my previous colleagues, Leslie Kobayashi, when she was at USC, wrote a nice paper looking at time to OR and delays greater than 24 hours, resulting in significant complications, mortality, renal failure, as well as the need for an increased number of debridements during patients' hospitalization. Now, when it comes to adjunctive therapies, there are a handful of those, and those include number one, intravenous immune globulin, or IVIG, number two, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and number three, a novel immune modulator known as ritelsamod. Regarding IVIG, I think if you have it available, there's good evidence to support its use, particularly in the setting of patients with streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. Uh, A meta-analysis, which looked at about five studies, demonstrated decreased 90-day mortality in patients who received IVIG. When it comes to hyperbaric oxygen therapy, this certainly is not a modality that I personally have any experience with. Uh, If you have a hyperbaric chamber at your facility and the expertise to do so, that may be an option. I will say, however, that the vast majority of patients with NSTIs tend to be very sick. And so the idea of not being in either the OR or ICU and going for a dive in the chamber, for me at least personally, gives me a little anxiety. And finally, last year, a multicenter placebo-controlled study was performed out of Harborview and included acute study investigators, of which we were one of them, looking at the use of ritelsamod, which is a novel immune modulator, on outcomes in patients with NSTIs. And they looked at this composite outcome or endpoint known as NICE, which included variables such as the need for amputation, number of debridements, 28-day mortality, as well as resolution of organ dysfunction within the first couple of weeks. And essentially what they found was that in patients with severe NSTIs, there was a significant improvement in this endpoint. And further, ritelsamod was associated with improved resolution of organ dysfunction as well as hospital discharge status. So this is a very interesting and promising new therapy for patients, particularly who have severe NSTIs. So in conclusion, necrotizing soft tissue infections, although rare, continue to be associated with significant morbidity and mortality. And in terms of key take-home points, it really is so important to maintain a high index of suspicion among patients presenting with soft tissue infections, especially when they have pain out of proportion. And as we talked about, there are several risk factors that predispose patients for this condition. However, Many patients, especially young, healthy patients, may present with an NSTI without any obvious comorbidities or portal of entry. If you suspect that a patient has an NSTI, the gold standard diagnosis is an incision in the OR. So this is a surgical diagnosis, although there is a role for laboratory values like the Lernick score together with findings from radiographic studies like CT scan. But please don't ever delay definitive surgical management for these other potentially helpful diagnostic tests. When it comes to surgical management, wide aggressive debridement, and don't leave the OR until you've truly assessed the fascia as well as underlying muscle. Of course, as with any infectious disease process, supportive care, early initiation of the sepsis bundle, 
and broad-spectrum antibiotics are critical. Well, it's been a while and it's so good to be back and talking with you. Please let us know and share with others what you think of the show. If there are certain topics that you'd like us to cover, Season 2, we're talking all things acute care surgery, let us know. You can visit us at Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. The handle is at Trauma ICU Rounds or visit the website, TraumaICURounds.com and leave us a message. Until next time, please stay safe, take care of yourselves and one another. Keep reading and we'll talk soon.